Amen. Well, church, if you want to grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, Gospel of John, chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, the Gospel of John is the fourth uh, book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to, Lord willing, work our way through this book together as a, as a church family. Now, last week we began our study in the Gospel of John in his prologue, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And that prologue served as an introduction to some of the main themes in John's Gospel. And in verse 18, we saw John make this astonishing claim. He said, no one has seen God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so John is talking about how Jesus, the eternal word, the eternal God, took on flesh to show us God. Or as verse 14 puts it, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. It's amazing. When we see Jesus in the pages of Scripture, we see God. But if you're new to the Bible, maybe you're not a follower of Christ yet, maybe you're a skeptic and you're reading John's Gospel and you hear this claim about Jesus, you may hear and think with suspicion, really? I mean, if Jesus shows the world God, then why doesn't everyone bend a knee when they see Jesus in the pages of Scripture? Why doesn't everyone see God then? It's easy to make the claim that Jesus shows us God. It's another thing to prove it. And so the skeptic might ask the question, all right, show me, John. Anticipating a question like that, John then moves from the prologue into a courtroom setting in the rest of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 51, is kind of a courtroom setting. In court, judge and jury are looking for the truth, and they look for the truth by listening to different testimonies and examining evidence. And the text that we're going to look at this morning actually covers four separate days. Verse 29, verse 35, verse 43, they each begin with the next day, the next day, the next day. So John's covering four days in our text this morning. And you know the purpose of this letter, he makes it very clear in 20, chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life. That's why he wrote this letter, to show us who Jesus is. And so over these four days that we see in our text this morning, John is going to present two lines of evidence and then call us to believe. Point number one is this. Believe the testimony of John the Baptist. That's verses 19 through 34. Believe the testimony of John the Baptist. Point number two. Believe the evidence in Christ himself. And that's verses 35 through 51. Believe the evidence in Christ himself. So let's begin with that first line of evidence. 
believe the testimony of John the Baptist. So we'll pick up the story uh, in John's gospel as John introduces us to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in the Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29. The next day, this is day two, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. We'll stop there. So verse 19 begins with the testimony of John. Now, it might be kind of difficult to keep track of which John he's talking about. It might sound confusing. This is the gospel of John, right? So we're saying, which John is he talking about? We know the apostle John who wrote the gospel of John, he actually never mentions his own name in the gospel. So whenever you see John's name, it's not referring to the author. It's not referring to the apostle. The John that is mentioned here in verse 19 is John the Baptist. And we know from other gospel accounts, huge crowds were coming to to hear John the Baptist speak, to be baptized by him. And so John the Baptist is one of those figures in the New Testament who creates a big stir in the area. And his prominence began to raise some concerns among the religious leaders in in, in Judaism. And so verse 19 tells us they sent uh, an entourage to Uh, ask him some questions. And they they come to Jesus, these Jewish leaders from the Sanhedrin come with a barrage of questions. Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Christ is just a term in the New Testament that means the anointed one. Uh, The equivalent term in the Old Testament is Messiah, as you see pointed out in verse 41 later on in the text. 
Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Sometimes you hear Jesus Christ, people assume that. It's not his last name. Christ is a title that refers to his office. It's the title for a king. So by saying the anointed one, you, you know, a nation would anoint the coming king with oil, set him apart as their ruler. That's, what, that's what's referred to as the term Christ. The question about Elijah points back to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, when the prophet would announce that, that Elijah would come before the Christ, that, 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 that an Elijah-like figure would come before the Messiah. And then that last question about the prophet, are you the prophet, points to Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. There, Moses you know, Moses was the deliverer of God's people. He was a mediator between God and God's people, and he delivered God's people from slavery. But Moses in Deuteronomy 18 promised that one day God would send a prophet like him. And so there's this expectation that, that there's coming a, a prophet, not just any old prophet, but the prophet, a, a Moses-like prophet who would deliver God's people again. Now, historically... We know that in Jesus' day, Israel lived under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Didn't feel good. They were suffering under the Roman Empire. And so you have this, this sense of desperation living under the Roman Empire, combined with God's promise of a, of a deliverer. Desperation combined with God's promise of deliverer perked the people's hope when they saw this influential figure like John the Baptist come on the scene. Who is he? You don't, you don't run to questions like, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? You don't run to questions like that unless there's a, a sense of eagerness. There's a, a desperation among the people of God for a deliverer who will pull you out of the mess that you're in. And so that's the expectation, that's the hope that's, that's ripe among God's people at this point in history. Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And what John the Baptist makes very clear from the beginning is, no, I am not the Christ, nor is he Elijah, nor is he the prophet who will deliver God's people. His job is not to be the Savior. John the Baptist's job is not to be the object of the hope of the people of God. John the Baptist knows his job description. He makes it clear in verse 23. What is his job? I am the voice. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He's quoting from Isaiah 40, verse 3. Now, when Isaiah says that, this idea of making the way straight, it carries the idea of, of going before the king and clearing out all the obstacles from the path, taking the curvy roads that are kind of hard to navigate and, and actually cutting a straight road. And if there's a hill that the king would have to go over, you actually cut through the hill so you have a straight, cleared out, level path for the king to travel upon. That's what he thinks, that's what he describes his job to be. John knew the Christ, the king, was coming. It wasn't him, but he was the forerunner. So John, he may not be Elijah, but John the Baptist had an Elijah-like job. His job was to get the people ready for the king. 
to get the people ready for the king by removing obstacles that would keep them from seeing the Messiah. That's why John the Baptist's baptism was a baptism of repentance. One of the hills that needed to be leveled was the hill of pride, the sinful self-reliance that the people of God had. That hill needed to be leveled so that they could see their need for Jesus, the Christ, who is coming, and so that they could receive him as their king. And so when they ask, they're kind of, they're kind of astonished that John the Baptist is baptizing because he's not baptized. You know, they would bat, Jews would baptize in the Old Testament. They would baptize Gentiles who became Jewish. But John is baptizing Jewish people. And it's his way of saying, you're not, you're not just a child of God because Abraham's your ancestor. You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You need, to, you need to trust him. And so his baptism is a baptism of repentance. Why are you baptizing, John? He asks in verse 25. Then John answers why he's baptizing in verse 31. Why is he baptizing? I came baptizing with water that he, the Christ, might be revealed. That's why he's there. So on day one of our text, John announces the Christ was coming. In fact, he says more than that. He says in verse 26 that the Christ had already shown up. He says in verse 26, among you, one, right now, among you, one, you do not know. So he's saying right now among you is one that you do not know. So people knew Jesus. Oh, that's the carpenter's son. That's Joseph and Mary's son. But his identity as the Christ was still hidden up until this point. Then John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he turns the light on. Verse 29. The next day, this is day two, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, kind of blows his cover, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me. He's superior to John the Baptist because he was before me. So even before John the Baptist existed, Jesus, the Christ, existed. I myself, John says, did not know him. Now, what does John mean when he says, I myself did not know him, did not know Jesus? If you read Luke's account, the gospel account, we know that John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. Elizabeth and Mary were cousins. You can read about it in Luke 1. And so it's, it's very probable that, that Jesus and John the Baptist saw a lot of each other growing up, especially when they would go to Jerusalem to celebrate the, the various feasts. So John knew Jesus, but he didn't always know that Jesus was the Christ. That was hidden from him until now. Now, let me just pause for a second here, and I, I, wanna, I want you to put yourself in John the Baptist's shoes for a second. Just think about what's happening. Your cousin, who you've known for years, 30 years, this is your cousin who you played in the backyard with. This is your cousin who you skinned your knees with. Now you have to somehow wrap your mind around the fact that your cousin is God in the flesh. (laughs) I know my cousins. That's a hard sell. But John came to believe that Jesus 
is the Son of God. He came to believe through God's Word. This is not some guess. It's not some feeling he had deep down in his heart. God told him. Look at verse 33. I myself did not know him. In other words, he didn't know that Jesus was the Christ. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, so here's God's word to John, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And we know from Matthew chapter 3 that John the Baptist was the one who actually baptized Jesus. So he was there. John the Baptist saw the Spirit of God descend on Jesus like a dove and then remain. And John the Baptist believed God's word to him. Verse 34, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Again, John is testifying to what we've already seen in the prologue. That Jesus is no ordinary person. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And, and the, 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 the vision of who Jesus is begins to expand. Not only is he the eternal Son of God, John also testifies that Jesus is the Lamb of God. What's he mean by that? He's not just painting a picture that Jesus is, is, is gentle like a lamb. This image of the Lamb of God is John the Baptist reaching back to the Old Testament where we see the sacrifice of a lamb symbolizing our need for atonement. You can see about this in the Passover text that we, that we read earlier in Genesis 12 where God's wrath would pass over the homes of those who in faith had put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. You can see this in Isaiah 53 when the suffering servant is actually pictured as the lamb on whom our iniquities are laid. You can see this in Genesis 22, when Abraham is walking up Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son under obedience to God's command. And when they arrive at the top, Isaac, his son, he sees the wood, he sees the fire, and he asks his father Abraham, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham responds, God will provide. God will provide himself the lamb. This is all throughout the Old Testament. And we know from Hebrews 10 that no animal can take the place or serve as a substitute for a human being. So in that sense, the, the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were but a symbol. They were a signpost pointing forward to the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And so Isaac's questions to Abraham, we can hear it echoing echoing, echoing all throughout the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years in the Old Testament. Where is the true lamb who will take away the sins of the world? And then we come to verse 29. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice John isn't just saying who Jesus is. He's the lamb of God. He's also saying why Jesus came. Why did he come? Why did the Lamb of God come? To take away our sin. Jesus did not come to help us be better versions of ourselves in hopes that our good outweighs our bad and God's okay with us then. It doesn't work that way. In order for us 
as sinful human beings to be right with a holy God, it's not that our good outweighs are bad. Our sins must be taken away. And Jesus does this. The Lamb of God does this by actually bearing the punishment for our sin on the cross and then rising from the dead for our salvation on the third day. This is what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is what we just celebrated at the Lord's Supper before we, we turn to John. He's the Lamb of God who takes away sin. But whose sin? Whose sin does Jesus take away? What does verse 29 tell us? The sin of the world. Now, we have to be careful. That does not mean that, does not mean that everyone is reconciled with God. He's not a universalist. What John means there is that it's not, it's not just one little tribe and one little place of the earth. It's not just the Jews who are saved. It means What he means when he says that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he means anyone can be forgiven, old or young, rich or poor, white or black, male or female, Ethiopian or can, can, Canadian, anyone. And this is what we saw in the prologue, right? John 1, verse 11, it says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So not everybody receives him. But to all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. My non-Christian friend, listen, God does not forgive people regardless of what you think about Jesus. Well, it doesn't really matter what you do with Jesus. No, it matters what you do with Jesus. Jesus is going to tell us in 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus, God, God forgives, God reconciles all people who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus and him alone. And friends, you can do that right now. If you've not yet done that, you can right now turn from your sin. You can turn away from your self-reliance and you can trust in Christ. I urge you to do that now. To receive Jesus as your Lord, to receive him as your Savior. And Scripture promises he will take away your sin, your guilt, your shame. He will reconcile you. He'll make you right with God. Now, church, what does this mean for us, those who have trusted in Christ? I think one thing to note here is that if you've been a Christian for a while, one of the dangers is for us to take for granted God's forgiveness, to presume upon God's forgiveness. After a while, we can begin to think that, we can, we can begin to lose sight of the fact that our greatest problem, listen, our greatest problem was having a holy God, our own creator, opposed to us because of our sin. I don't care what you're facing, however difficult a problem you're facing, that, friends, is our greatest problem. And after a while, it's easy to lose sight of that. And when we forget that, it's then that other problems in our life become more pressing in our hearts and our minds. 
and we forget why Jesus came. As you read through the Gospel of John or either the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, you'll see that Jesus' disciples began with the assumption that the biggest problem was a political one. And we see that in the sense that they assumed that the Christ was coming to deliver them from Rome. That's why they thought he was coming. What's interesting is later on in the text, when two disciples choose to follow Jesus, in verse 38, look at verse 38. Jesus turns and saw them following, and he said to them, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? You're you're, you're following me, but what do you want? What are you expecting? What are you seeking? That's a really good question. It's a good question for them to ask. It's a good question that we need to ask ourselves as well as we seek to obey and follow Jesus. Friends, ask yourself that. What am I seeking? Are there things that I expect Jesus to do that he never promised to do? One symptom of these wrong expectations of missing why Jesus came is to look at your own life and to recognize if your heart, friends, if your heart is given to bitterness or anger or sinful fear or a sense of entitlement, it might be that you have a wrong expectation of why Jesus came. What are you seeking? Jesus asks. When God confronted Adam in the Garden of Eden after he sinned, remember what he did? He didn't take responsibility. He blamed his wife. It's the woman's fault. It's the, it's the woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit. Why does he do that? Why does he blame? He doesn't want to stand before the holy gaze of God, so he hides by deflecting, by saying, it's hers. Look at her, not look at me, look at her. And ever since Adam did that, we have had the same tendency. Like Adam, we blame others. We deflect the true sin problem in our own hearts because we don't want to stand under the holy gaze of God. We say, it's my parents' fault. It's the government's fault. It's, it's my boss's fault. It's my lack of sleep. And Whatever it is we blame, we shift the responsibility somewhere else. And I think what's going on is that each of us is desperate to justify ourselves. Because whether we realize it or not, we, we are terrified about standing under the holy gaze of our creator, just like Adam. But brothers and sisters, in Christ, listen, in Christ we are justified. We don't need to justify ourselves because in Christ he has justified us. He has declared us innocent because of his death and his resurrection. Listen, Jesus did not come to remove every problem that frustrates us in order to coddle our sinful hearts. That's not why he came. He loves us more than that. He loves us more than to just make us comfortable and coddle our sin. Jesus came, why? To take away our sin so that we can then turn around as justified sinners, follow him as our king. 
Now, don't, don't mishear me. Jesus is not, I'm not saying that Jesus is indifferent to the family, political, economic, or cultural problems that frustrate us or leave us angry or fearful. Oh, he cares. And so should we. But I think what we're, what he, part of what we're seeing here is that we better address the frustrations that we face in this life when we see those problems in comparison to our greatest problem. Of, of, of having a God opposed to us, a problem that in Christ has already been resolved. We face tomorrow's problems as sinners justified in Christ, and that changes the way that we look at political and cultural and family problems that we're going to face tomorrow. It, it, just, it just changes it. And so, friends, we should believe we should believe the testimony of John the Baptist about Jesus. But hold on. We've never met John the Baptist. He's asking, Jesus is demanding our life. And, and, and we're supposed to bank our life on the testimony of a guy we don't know? And by the way, John the Baptist, he wore camel's hair. He ate locusts. That's weird. Why would we trust John the Baptist's testimony? Well, I think if John the Baptist were here and we asked John, why should we trust you? He would say, look to Jesus. Every time you go to John, he's like, no, 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 look to him. Why should we trust you, John? Look to Jesus. And that's the second line of evidence we see in this text. Point number two. Believe the evidence in Christ himself. Yes, believe the testimony of John the Baptist. But second, believe the evidence in Christ himself. Look at verse 35 again. Verse 35. The next day, right? So there's a natural break in the text. This is day three. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour, which would be about 4 p.m. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. All right. So for a second time in our text this morning, John the Baptist announces or introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God. Andrew, who is one of John's disciples, one of his followers, his students, well, he, he takes John the Baptist's cue and he, he stops following John the Baptist and he starts following Jesus which is exactly what John the Baptist wants. 
But after spending some time with Jesus, Andrew goes and tells his brother Simon in verse 41, we have found the Messiah. Those are not any, those are not, that's not a small sentence. That's a huge sentence. We found the Christ. He's saying, listen, listen, the one that the people of God who have been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the one whom God has promised ever since Genesis 3 verse 15, we found him. We have found the Christ. We have found the king. And notice what John, notice what Jesus does in verse 42. Jesus looks, looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. That's remarkable. To name someone or to rename them, you have to have authority. My wife, Katie, and I, we chose the names of our two boys. We said, you're going to be called Hudson, you're going to be called Gavin. And we, we did that because God made us their parents. He gave us authority over our two children as their parents. And so it's right for us to choose their names. It's a symbol of authority. And so in changing Simon's name to Peter, Jesus is displaying his authority over Simon. He's displaying his authority over anyone who chooses to follow him. If you choose to follow Jesus, friends, the only way you follow him is as your king. Where he has absolute authority over your life. He has every right to tell you what to do in every nook and cranny of your life. There's no area where you can say, well, not that part, God. No, 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 no. You follow him as king. So Jesus renaming Simon to Peter shows his authority. His renaming Simon also shows Jesus' power to make us new people, to recreate us. We saw this in the prologue as well. When Jesus says, you shall be called Cephas, He's not predicting what, what Simon might become one day. Hopefully, no. He's declaring with absolute authority, Simon, you will be Cephas. You will be Peter. Cephas or Peter are, uh, two, are terms. Cephas is the Aramaic. Peter is the Petra. It's the, term for, uh, it's the Greek term for rock. So he's saying, you will be a rock, Simon. No longer will you be Simon, now you're going to be the rock. Now, if you know anything about Peter in the Gospels, that almost sounds funny at first, right? Because you kind of see him all over the board in, in the text. And in, in John 18, we're going to see Peter um, denounce ever having known Jesus. Three times before the rooster crows, he's going to deny knowing Jesus when a little servant girl uh, asks him. He kind of cowers in fear. Hardly the vision of a rock, right? But what's amazing is by the end of the gospel, John 21, Jesus restores Peter, and, 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 and we know that Peter becomes a leader in the church. He writes, he writes first and second Peter, and he becomes a leader in the church. And in fact, from church history, we know, we know that he actually is a martyr for the faith. He dies for his faith. He doesn't denounce Christ. He actually dies courageously without, with, by refusing to denounce Christ. The point is, Simon becomes Peter. Simon became the rock. 
not just in name, but in his person and his character. Again, we ask the question, how did that change come about? Jesus. <laughs> Looking at verse 33. John the Baptist says, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. It's this idea that, that, that Jesus receives the Spirit in a way that he's able to then turn around and give the Spirit of God to whom he wishes, to those who come to him. So Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit, don't, don't misunderstand that. That does not refer to a second blessing in the Christian life that results in you speaking in tongues. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is every person who becomes a Christian is baptized with the Holy Spirit. Every Christian, without exception, receives the Holy Spirit. His way of saying that is you're baptized, you're immersed in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to anyone who turns from sin and trusts in him. This idea of baptizing the Holy Spirit is actually, is actually uh, new covenant language that is talked about in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 26, 26 and 27 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What, what Ezekiel prophesied, Jesus fulfills. Michelangelo, the Renaissance, was once chipping away at a shapeless rock when somebody came to him and asked, what are you doing, Michelangelo? His answer was this, I am releasing the angel imprisoned in the marble. It's a good way of putting it. Friends, in our sin, in our failures, in our shame, in our guilt, we, we may struggle to see or believe that God could change a sinner like me. But what we can't see, Jesus can. What we struggle to do, Jesus does with ease. By the power of his Holy Spirit, he can change you. In fact, what happened to Peter, going from Simon to Peter, Simon to the rock, what happened to Peter, this transformation, happens to every true believer. The good work that God has begun in you, Christian, he will be faithful to bring it to completion. He makes no mistakes. God gives us his spirit when we make the choice by his grace to believe the gospel and to turn from our sin and to trust in Christ, we're baptized with his spirit. But the, the Christian life is not just end there. It's not like, well, I, I became a Christian, now I'm done. No, it begins there. Once you become a Christian, what do you do next? You turn to the Bible, you read the Bible, and you obey God's word. You obey his commands. Coming from God, your king, to you, his child, in the Bible, our good king, Jesus, shows us how to truly live. He's going to say in John 10, 10, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. Well, how do we know how to have that full life? By reading the Bible and obeying what he says. Well, how do we obey what he says? By the power of his Holy Spirit. By relying on him. 
Obedience is not easy. We're still sinners this side of heaven. In, in, the, new, in the new heavens and the new earth, obedience will be easy. This side of, of heaven, it's hard because we're still sinners. So there's no magic wand that you can wave that will instantaneously make you look like Jesus Christ. Sanctification, which is the theological term of us becoming like Jesus. Sanctification happens as we use the normal means of grace. Reading your Bible. Praying. Gathering with your church family. And living out your Christian life with others. There's no shortcuts. This is God's design. This is how he does it. But with his Holy Spirit, we are actually set free from the slavery of sin. Because of the Holy Spirit, we can actually say no to sin. Because of the Holy Spirit, we are empowered to trust God. We are empowered to obey his commands. And over time, little by little, he's chipping away at that stone. And he's making us look like Jesus. Praise God. So, Jesus, uh, one of the things we, we see about him is he is the one who makes us new creations. He recreates us. But the other thing I want us to notice here at the end of chapter 1 in this second line of evidence is that not only, not only does God change us, but he then also shows us what our witness to others should look like. So we'll pick it up there in the text in verse 43. Verse 43, the next day, so this is the, the fourth day, right? This is the fourth day that John covers. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Friends, John the Baptist's job that we saw earlier, his job was to point people to Jesus. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. He points people to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He points people to Jesus so that they trust Jesus, so that they see Jesus' greatness. He points people to Jesus, not so that they trust him, not so that they would see John's greatness or that they would trust in John. John knew who he wasn't. <laughs> Friends, that's, that's tricky. When, when you see John pointing other people to Jesus, when you see he's happy when they leave him to follow Jesus, that's, that's tricky. Because our value today is often set by how many followers we have. 
How many likes we get on social media? Your, your kind of currency in the culture is by the number of followers. How, how big of a celebrity are you? But John is just happy for people to leave him and go to Jesus. How does he get there? That'd be hard for us. How, is, how does John get there? Well, again, John knew he wasn't the Savior. John knew he wasn't the Christ. I am not the Christ. John knew who he wasn't. We talk a lot about knowing who we are. You also, you also know who you're not. And friends, we've we got to be honest with ourselves. It, it, it feels good when somebody notices, appreciates, or even needs you, right? It feels good. But in your effort to help someone, do you remember who you are not? You're not the Savior. You're not the Christ. Church, we are not the Savior. We are not the Christ. Our job is not to be the Savior. It's not to be the object of affection. Our job is to point people to Jesus, as John did. And so we, as Jesus' followers, must beware of letting our care and love for someone mask our attempts to be liked by them. It's possible to serve someone, but ultimately to be using them. I'm doing this so that they notice me. I'm doing this so that they like me. I'm doing this so that they need me because I need that. That's using the person, not loving them. We must be aware of that. Our job, like John's, is to point people to Jesus. They trust in him and rely on him and, and worship him. But I think knowing who we're not helps us to also appreciate and rest in who God is. In Jesus' day, a, a disciple or a student was expected to do a lot for his teacher, right? Except one thing. They, the student or the disciple did not have to take off the dirty sandals of the rabbi. That was just too low. And so there's actually written kind of codes. You don't have to do that, right? That was the job of the servant. That was the job of the slave. But notice what John says in verse 27 of Jesus. I am not worthy to untie his sandals. So John the Baptist sees himself as lower than a servant, as lower than a slave when it comes to comparing himself to Jesus. And listen, that's not false humility. Moping around, fishing for compliments. No, John, you're really a great guy. No, 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 no. John's being honest. As one writer defines humility, he says, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness, right? Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And friends, our witness should be humble like John's. It will be humble like John's when we see ourselves in light of who God is. Humility also shapes the tone of our witness, right? Listen, we don't argue people into heaven. You know that? Evangelism is not a matter of trapping someone with our rhetoric and our logic and saying, gotcha! And voila, they're Christians. <laughs> as, as, as wonderful and as important and as crucial as apologetics is, evangelism is, is not arguing people into salvation. It doesn't work that way. Yes, we, we reason 
with others from the scriptures. Acts 17, verse 2. Yes, we try to persuade people. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. But we, we reason with them and we, we seek to persuade them by the open statement of the truth, God's word. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. That's what Philip did. Look at verse 45 again. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. That's the Old Testament. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? I, I grew up uh, a Milford Eagle. That was our high school mascot, right? And, and our, our high school rival was the local uh, town, uh, Centennial. They were the Centennial Broncos. So when the Centennial Broncos played the Milford Eagles, it was, it was a heated game. And there was lots of booing, boo, you know, in the crowds when, when we were playing each other. Because we were rivals. It was heated games. In the same way, Nathaniel came from nearby Cana. We're going to see that in chapter uh, 21. And Cana is a, a, a local town uh, near Nazareth, and they were very likely rival cities. And so uh, Philip is skeptical when he hears, or Nathaniel's skeptical when he hears Philip say that the Messiah is from Nazareth. That'd be like somebody telling me that the Messiah was from Centennial. <laughs> really? Can anything good come from Nazareth? That's what he says. And so if he's going to believe Philip, if he's going to believe that the Messiah comes from Nazareth, he, he needs, he's going to need some more evidence. Because he's skeptical. So what does Philip do? All right. Come and see. Come and meet him. Come and listen to him. Come and see. And what happens? By verse 49, Nathanael the skeptic answers him, Rabbi, you are. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Philip took Nathanael to come and see Jesus. In church today, God still speaks. God speaks to us through the Bible. And so we have the opportunity to do with our non-believing friends what Philip did. We can say to those who are skeptical, we can say to our non-Christian friends, I, I, know, this sounds, I know this sounds hard to believe. I, I, I know that when I talk about Jesus rising from the dead, that that just might sound outlandish. But, but don't take my word for it. Come and see. And, and we do that by, by inviting people to read the Bible with us. So friends, if you're not a Christian, let me reiterate that. The, if you're not there yet, you're still kind of kicking the tires of Christianity. If you're trying to figure out if Christianity is true, the best way for you to figure out whether or not the Bible is true, the best way for you to figure out whether or not Jesus is who he says he is, is by reading the Bible yourself. Read through the Gospel of John. Read through the Gospel of John with a Christian friend. And if you don't have a Christian friend or you don't know who to ask, come talk to me or contact the church office. We would gladly talk with you and try our best to answer the questions that you have as they come up as you read God's word in the gospel of John. 
Read the Bible yourself. The, the, one of the, the best lines of evidence is Jesus himself. The Bible itself is self-authenticating, but you've got to read it yourself. And the only other thing I would add to that is, is if you take my challenge to read the Bible yourself, my only other challenge is read it, read it with an open mind. Don't come to the Bible with your mind made up. That's not being honest intellectually. Read the Bible with an open mind, right? When Jesus saw Nathanael, that's what he said about Nathanael. He said, oh, here comes an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. There's no guile in him. So he, Jesus knows Nathanael through and through, and he knows that he may be skeptical, but at least he's willing to follow where the evidence leads. He's willing to go where the truth leads him. And the truth, my friend, will always lead to Jesus. The truth will always lead to us seeing that Jesus is who he says he is. The Son of God, the Lamb of God, the King who we are called to trust. Chapter 1 is jam-packed with a number of truths and titles about Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who takes with the sins of the world, verse 29. Andrew declared, we have found the Messiah, the Christ, verse 41. Philip notes that Jesus is whom the Old Testament points to. The Old Testament is about Jesus. It's pointing forward to. It's, right, it's been written about him. That's verse 45. And then after Jesus demonstrates his divine knowledge, his, 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 his knowledge of what's going on in Nathanael's heart, Nathanael answers, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And listen, all these titles, all these things about Jesus, they are true. But just as the outline in a coloring book needs to be filled in, their understanding of Jesus and our understanding of Jesus needs to grow. It needs to be filled in. The dots need to be connected. They're saying true things, but there's a lot more to see and to know about Jesus. And thankfully, Jesus promised Nathaniel in verse 50, you will. You, you're, you're getting it. You're saying true things, but you will see greater things than these. Friends, if we trust and obey Jesus, we too will see greater things. Well, what are we going to see? Look at verse 51. You, and by the way, that you is plural, y'all, it's, it's, this is for all of us, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. John ends this section by pointing to an Old Testament idea. In, in the Old Testament, Jacob dreamt of a ladder bridging the gap between God and man. You can read about it in Genesis 28. And John makes the connection that Jesus is that ladder. Jesus is that bridge that, that, that links the gap between sinful man and a holy God, between heaven and earth. He is that bridge. And so as we step out in faith, we will see the power of God that softens the hardened hearts. We will see lives recreated by the power of Jesus, communities recreated by the power of Jesus, communities and lives that have been broken by sin. We will see greater things. We will see that hopeless situations will be made hopeful. And knowing that, our witness, like John's, should be to point people to Jesus. It should be humble. It should be biblical. 
It should be an invitation to others to come and see Christ in the pages of Scripture and in the context of the lives that are being changed in the local church. Hopeless situations made hopeful. John 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen.